Well, good morning, Harmony. How are we doing this morning? I trust that you all had an excellent Thanksgiving, or at least maybe ate a little bit more than you should have. Now, for me this year, I'll be honest, Thanksgiving felt like a little bit of a test, a test of my faith. As many of you know, I've lost just a few pounds this year, and so because of that, Thanksgiving really just felt like a test of my self-control. And we know in Galatians, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, so I wasn't in it alone, but God knows I needed some Holy Spirit help with all that good food laid out before us on Thursday. Now, I'll be honest, I always desire the, the fruit of the Spirit to grow in my life, but I will just say fruit and vegetables was not what I was eyeing on Thanksgiving, unless you consider pie form or marshmallows on top of it, a, an acceptable version of fruit. But nonetheless, I did okay. I'm not sure if I passed the self-control test with flying colors, but the Lord is gracious and good, and I'm still here, and I didn't gain it all back in one day, so we're okay. Now, hopefully at this point, the turkey's worn off from all of you. You're wide awake, and you're ready to dive in God's word together. Amen? Now, as you can tell from our sermon bumper, we're starting a new series, Titus, Doctrine and Devotion. This is going to take us through the end of the year. And today, my primary goal is really just to to set up this letter, introduce it, as well as to cover Paul's greeting to Titus in the first four verses that was just read to you. Titus is a letter written by Paul to, you guessed it, Titus, pretty straightforward, Titus was one of Paul's disciples, or as he calls him, my true child in a common faith. Paul is writing to Titus, who he left in Crete, which is an island. It's in the Mediterranean Sea, kind of just south of Greece, just west of modern-day Turkey. A beautiful island, not a bad place to get left. Now, this letter is part of what's commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus make up that group, and they're called the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters because in them, Paul's going to provide instruction to a young pastor on pastoring. Instructions for setting up the church, for standing firm in the faith, for teaching sound doctrine and living out that faith through godly lives, pursuing good works. Now, perhaps your first thought is, if This letter is written to pastors, and for pastors, why are we going to spend the next five weeks looking at it as a church? It's not for me. It's a fair question. I think Chris just wants us to hear it. That's that's all I got for you. Just kidding. But I know the last couple sermon series we did, I thought were very practical, very applicable, and I know the Lord used them greatly. We talked about the importance of scripture. We talked about the extremely relevant topics of sexuality, marriage, divorce, and singleness. But now we're going to dive into a letter to a pastor. I assure you this is no bait and switch. Actually, I'm convinced that this letter, as much as the others, is going to be very important. It's going to be relevant for each and every one of us. It's going to be a great study. And because of that, I want to challenge everybody. There's just a few weeks. 2021 is winding to a close. I want to challenge each and every one of you to really dive into this book with us. If you haven't grabbed the reading plan, read along with us. It's a short book. 
If you read it with us, you're going to read the book multiple times over the next number of weeks. But really dive in, study this letter, participate on your own, get quality time in it. And then as we come together as a church, let's dive in it together. Can we do that? Wow. Amen. Amen. All right, two people are going to read it with me. All right. We can do it, I promise. Now, as a pastoral epistle, it does have some specific implications or direction for pastors. However, it was never intended to only be for pastors. If you remember from our Buy the Book series, right? Right? People remember that? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 18 tells us that all scripture, including Titus, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I believe the book of Titus, as God's word, has words for each and every one of us to be equipped for the good works that the Lord has for us. So as we begin, have confidence that his word in Titus has something for you, to grow you in your faith, to work in your heart, even, dare I say it, transform your life. Additionally, even though this was a personal letter written from Paul to Titus, it was never written to be a private letter. In fact, it was written to be public. Think of it this way. Paul's writing this letter to Titus. Titus receives the letter. He's reading it, but the church there is reading it over his shoulder. And now generations later, we are too reading it over his shoulder. As I said, the book of Titus has a lot for us. Even though it's short, it instructs on appointing elders who are going to teach sound doctrine, are going to protect the church against false teaching, against opponents to the gospel. It's going to give us instructions on how the family of God, how we're to live godly lives, how we're to be and make disciples in community and in our homes. And it's going to instruct us how to live in this world. How to be salt and light. How to live on mission. Essentially, Titus gives us instructions on how to be the church. Or as we like to say, how to be a worshiping community on mission. How to grow in worshiping the Lord individually and together. Focusing on sound doctrine. How to live in community, spurring on and encouraging one another in our faith. And how to be salt and light in a world as we live on mission. Proclaiming the gospel and displaying it in our lives through good works for God's glory. A worshiping community on mission. Striving to grow in our depth and understanding of doctrine that's leading us to greater and greater devotion to God. Greater and greater devotion to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And since we just finished a series where we talked about marriage, let's stay in that lane. You see, Titus is all about this marriage between doctrine and devotion, a marriage between doctrine and devotion in the lives of God's people. This is a marriage that's it's essential for our faith. It's essential for our life in Christ. It's essential to be a healthy, flourishing disciple of Christ. And at Harmony Bible Church, right, we want to be disciples and make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. So thus, this marriage between doctrine and devotion in our lives, in our church, is critical. They cannot, they must not be divorced or separated from one another in the life of a believer. 
They're to be married, inseparable. Sound biblical doctrine spurring us on towards godly devotion. And this is too what James talks about that makes us uncomfortable sometimes as Protestants. Faith without works is dead. Because genuine faith should result in good works. If we have faith in Christ, if we believe in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, then the natural outpouring of that is a life of obedience to him. Our faith leads us to obedience, not our obedience leads us to saving faith, but our faith should spur us on and lead us to obedience. Or as one commentator puts it, while obedience does not merit or earn salvation, neither is it an ancillary or optional element of salvation. It is part of God's very intention. So let's be crystal clear on this. We are only and only saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation, unmerited saving grace. But that faith should spur us on, lead us to godly living as we grow in our knowledge of the truth and our devotion to Christ. Another simple way to say this is maybe, maybe sound doctrine should result in godly Devotion, sound doctrine resulting in godly devotion. Thus, as a church and individually, we should seek to grow in our understanding of sound doctrine. But as we do so, we should do it seeking and anticipating the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts, to transform us, to live out that truth more and more and more through godly devotion. That's where we're going. This is why our sermon series is subtitled Doctrine and Devotion. I know I've used those words a ton already. You're going to keep hearing them. So let's make sure we're on the same page going forward by defining these words, doctrine and devotion. Let's first start with doctrine. Quite simply, doctrine is this, instruction, teaching, a belief, or a set of beliefs. Nothing fancy here. Don't be concerned by the word doctrine. It can be one of those Christian words, right, that everybody throws out there. We talk about all the time, but nobody's quite sure exactly what we mean by it. Now, in this definition, I want you to pay particular attention to set of beliefs, as I believe this is the way that is most typically used throughout God's word, as well as in the church today. When people say doctrine, it's often tied to a particular set of beliefs, and we're going to see that Paul uses this word multiple times in Titus and throughout the other pastoral epistles as well. And he is emphasizing the importance of pastors to teach sound doctrine. And in that case, to teach the truths and instructions, the core set of beliefs about God that God, in fact, gave to his people in and through his word. Namely, sound doctrine are the truths found in God's word, what God wants us to know. And how do I know that? Because it's the same word, same Greek word that we get from Jesus himself. You see the Greek word for doctrine? I'm not going to try to say it. It has the same root word as the word teaching that we find in the great commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You see, Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, many of you know this, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, 
Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here it is, teaching them, indoctrinating, doctrinizing them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then, of course, Christ ends with a promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as we're talking about teaching sound doctrine and we talk about doctrine, we need to realize this is all rooted back in Christ, in Jesus' instructions, who calls his disciples, calls each and every one of us to teach others to observe all that he has commanded. Teach others to observe. Not teach just to build up our head knowledge, our doctrinal knowledge, but teaching that leads us to observe all that Christ commands. Doctrine that leads to obedience. Doctrine that leads to devotion. Now let's define devotion. Devotion can be defined as this. Commitment to. Pay careful attention to. Loyalty and love toward. Two times in chapter 3 of Titus, we're going to see that Paul's going to make the point that God's people are to devote themselves to good works, to devote themselves to good works, to the teaching, the instruction, the doctrine that they are learning and growing in. In other words, the concept here for devotion as we study Titus is that given the, the truths of God word, God's word, given that sound doctrine, that sound teaching from Christ, from the word we are to be committed to, to pay careful attention to what should result from that doctrine, what should result from that teaching, namely godly devotion, devotion to the good works that the Lord would have for us, devotion to obedience in and to Christ. It's living a life devoted to Christ and devoted to seeking to observe all that he has commanded, doctrine and devotion. That's what we're going to be diving into through the end of the year. My hope and my prayer is that as we do so, we might grow in our faith, grow in our knowledge, grow in the truth, our sound doctrine, but that it would lead us to godly devotion, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting devotion to the good works that I believe and trust that the Lord has for each and every single one of you to be his salt and light, to be his ambassadors in this world so that more and more people might hear the good news. And inside of that, more and more people might see the beauty, we just talked about brokenness and beauty, the beauty of living a life committed to God individually and as a church, committed to God's truth, committed to, devoted to obeying him, none of which is to earn our salvation, but in response to the salvation and the hope we have in Christ. That's my prayer for us through the end of the year. So now let's get practical for a minute about each and every one of your individual doctrine and devotion. You see, here's the deal. Every one of you, whether you want to believe me or not, I'm going to try to convince you of this, live, you all live according to some type of doctrine, some set of core beliefs. I hope you believe this. And then out of that, your devotion, what we're really committed to, the way that we live, that actually reflects the doctrine. It reflects those core beliefs that we rest in. And I say this because this is going to be critical for us to understand and to even think and pray through as we study Titus because 
If we're, if we're going to grow in our knowledge of God, if we want to grow and build our sound doctrine, we need to know where we're starting. And then we need to trust as we grow in that sound doctrine that it's going to be transforming our lives to live more like Christ. We need to understand where we're at, where we're going, because we need to understand that where we are at in our doctrine and devotion, where it's off, where it needs adjustment, we might be able to ask the Holy Spirit to work and convict us in our lives. Let me give some examples of what I mean by this. See if we can get a little practical for a second. So first, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, right? Did everybody eat some turkey, maybe? Now, here's a doctrine that I would bet most of you have on Thanksgiving. You ready for it? The calories you eat on Thanksgiving do not count. Right? Because many of you, right, you also have some type of doctrine, a core set of beliefs that, that eating healthy, eating an appropriate amount of calories or whatever you do, you're on and off a diet perhaps, you think that's important. You believe that that is important. So you have a doctrine of eating healthy, a doctrine of some type of diet in your life that you try to ascribe to live by. However, all of a sudden Thanksgiving comes around and that doctrine goes to the wayside. Because the doctrine and your devotion to delicious Thanksgiving food, your doctrine to calories that don't count on special holidays, some of you it's just Thanksgiving, some of you it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, Flag Day, Earth Day, you got to eat stuff out of, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm just being a little silly, but you see those two doctrine, those two core set of beliefs collide on holidays, and one of those takes precedence. Let's try another one, but this time I want some participation. Let's get uncomfortable. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Let's just, can, can people just put their hands in the air just see if it's possible? Some of you I can tell from worship. Some of you are like, that's your worship posture right there. All right, now I'm being bad. All right, I, I think everybody can raise their hands. So let's, let's, let's talk about traffic laws, shall we? How many of you believe by a show of hands that it is right to obey general traffic laws when you're driving your car? Now, come on, if you're viewing through the live stream for Madison, Burlington, or at home, raising your hands, not for me, it's for the people around you. Get them up there. Come on. All right, hopefully the same is true for people viewing me on the screen. But what I saw was a general consensus. Now, some of you are raising your hands because you believe other people should follow traffic laws and get out of your way, right? There you go. But there's a pretty big consensus that we all believe that. All right, now let's talk about the speed limit. All right, disclaimer, if you're a police officer, normally our sermons we try to make for everybody, but if you're a police officer, I'm going to have to you close your eyes, bow your head. It's just, you just need to pray for a little bit. All right, just don't pay no attention. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. My father-in-law was a police officer, and I know nobody that's sped more than him. So. And I think they're watching right now, so I'm sure I'll hear about that. But let's think about the speed limit. So now, how many of you believe, by a show of hands, that it's perfectly acceptable to drive 5, 10 miles over the speed limit, and you're going to be just fine? I appreciate your participation, right? Because here's the deal. God knows how fast you drive, one. Two, your spouse, if you're married, knows how fast you drive. Three, and as I've learned recently, your kids know how fast you drive. My kids recently discovered the speedometer. So when it like peaks over 70, they're like, didn't that sign say 65, dad? So there you go. Now we, 
laugh and jest. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, pick on anybody. By the way, I saw some of you that didn't raise your hand. And you can, you can say it's because you go the speed limit. It's actually because you think 15 miles is fine. Okay, 50 miles per hour over the speed limit is fine. Chris could not give this portion of the sermon. I've got to get one in there every time. All right. But there we go. We just established two beliefs. We believe we should obey traffic laws, but we also believe it's perfectly okay to go a few miles over the speed limit. Now, I'm not trying to convict you about your driving right now. I promise that's not what I've been praying about. Only to demonstrate we all have beliefs. We all live by those beliefs some way or another. They reflect themselves generally in how we live our lives. Our devotion indicates or reflects our doctrine. And the book of Titus is all about that marriage of doctrine and devotion. And the reason sound doctrine is so critical is because it's ultimately going to be reflected in our devotion. And Titus is going to challenge us to consider, and I want to challenge all of us through the end of the year here, is our faith in Christ the number one belief, the number one doctrine, the number one thing we're devoted to in our lives? Is it truly the most important thing? And if so, how does our life reflect that through our devotion? Our devotion to God's truth, to studying it, to reading it, to trust it. Trusting that through that, the Holy Spirit's going to work in our lives to convict, to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. Devoted to godliness and good works so that God's glory might shine in and through our lives. Life committed to sound doctrine and devotion to good works. So let's begin this journey shortly. Some of you might be nervous. I'm deep into it. I'm just getting to the text. It's okay. Remember, primary goal, setting up the book. So we're going to spend just a short amount of time here diving into the beginning four verses of Titus. I know it's already been read, but go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Titus. Just to help you out, it's just before Philemon, all right? So just kidding. That's one page. It's right before Hebrews Philemon's in between. You'll be all right. It's on page 784 in the provided chair Bibles. Here again, our text in God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul's opening here to Titus is fairly true to form, fairly standard when it comes to common letters during this time and other letters we find in the Bible. Paul identifies himself. He lets us know who the author is, followed by uh, typically a brief description statement. Now, in Titus, it's one of the longer ones. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And then he addresses who the letter is to and finishes with a formal greeting, which in this case is grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. 
So here's what I'm going to do this morning from our passage. I'm going to point out three really quick observations because I'm a nerd. They're things that stood out. I was excited about them. So I'm going to sneak those in and then we're, going to un- and we're not going to unpack them too much. Don't worry. And then we're going to talk about two questions, two questions that I think this introduction uh, clarifies answers for us about the book and what we're going to be studying in the days ahead. So three points, two questions. So first three points here. Number one, in verse two, Paul adds a descriptor to God. And that descriptor is, he says, God who never lies. Now this seems straightforward and simple, but Paul's actually trying to poke the bear here. He's trying to connect directly with that audience that's reading this letter over Titus's shoulder. And this is important for the context of this book. Remember, Paul's writing to Titus, and Titus is ministering in Crete. And as we're going to see next week, Cretans were known to be liars. In other words, lying was very normal in their culture, maybe even celebrated, but at least it was culturally acceptable to lie. This characteristic, many believe, is rooted in its celebrated pagan god, Zeus, who was a known liar. In fact, he lied and would deceive women in order to have sex with them. Now, what I learned from this is Zeus should have been here the last seven weeks, should have dove in our Brokenness and Beauty series and understood what was wrong with that situation. The Cretans, in fact, even claimed that Zeus's tomb was on the island of Crete, which we know is also a lie, because A, that's probably not true. B, Zeus isn't real. So C, if there is a tomb, it's empty. And so it's another lie. But what Paul is doing in this short little comment in his introduction, knowing who he's talking to, who he's ministering to, he's setting up God. We're gonna be talking about sound doctrine. We can trust God. In fact, God never lies because he can't lie. It's against his character. God is truth against the pagan god in Crete who's a liar. So God's putting pity, or Paul's using this to pit them against them, each other and to let the Cretans know that God is who can be trusted. Point number two, Paul refers to Titus as my true child in a common faith. His true child in a common faith. So this is really just setting up Paul would have been ministering to Titus. Titus was likely his spiritual offspring, someone that he shared the gospel with, came to faith, and Paul ministered to him, discipled him, and kind of grew up in the faith under him. So Titus was most likely much younger than Paul. But what I look at is common faith, my true child in a common Faith. You see, Titus, in this case, was an uncircumcised Gentile. And then we have Paul, who is a circumcised Jew. And Paul is referencing here this common faith. And he's emphasizing that their unity, their bond together, regardless of nationality, regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnic identity, is united in a common faith for all. Paul's again speaking here against some of the heresy that was being taught at the time. We saw this a lot earlier this year in the Galatians series, but Paul is right off the bat here confronting some of the lies that Gentiles were to become Jews, that they needed to be circumcised in order to come to saving faith. And Paul is saying, no, 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 this is my true child in a common faith, that he has the same faith that Paul has, and it has nothing to do 
with their ethnicity, but has everything to do with who their faith is in. That's faith itself, not anything else, that binds believers together to Christ first and foremost and then with one another. Fun fact number three. We find in verse three, Paul writes, God our Savior. And then right afterwards in verse four, we see Paul write, Christ Jesus our Savior. So here Paul calls both God the Father and Jesus, God the Son, our Savior. Now I know this is subtle. Some people like to chalk it up as confusing, but it's intentional and it's key to sound biblical doctrine. Paul here is clearly showing some unity and equality between both God the Father and Christ the Son. This is touching on the doctrine of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each person, fully God, co-equal, co-eternal, all of that stuff. And here, though, it's unique. Paul's referencing that both God the Father is our Savior and Christ the Son is our Savior. And I know diving into the waters of the Trinity, I'm going to lose some people, and it wants to make our head explode trying to wrap our minds around one God, three persons, but... We're going to talk about doctrine and devotion, so here we go. You see, it's important to understand that God is one and that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in our salvation. The fancy word for this is inseparable operation, and we're not going to dive into that, but it's as God acts, he acts as one. So Jesus didn't come by himself on his own merit and accord, ignoring the Father and the Holy Spirit, came and saved us and is our Savior, but rather our salvation is an act, a unified, inseparable act of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And together, in their distinct roles, they work together to accomplish our salvation and thus be our Savior. If you want to talk about inseparable operations sometimes, I love it. But that's all we're going. I probably went too far down that rabbit trail. But doctrine is good. And it's one of the emphases of this series. So there you go. But remember, that's only half, right? We've got to marry that with our devotion. So all that's cool information. But it should lead us, spur us on to see how amazing God is. And move us to more and more devotion of him. So that's our three quick observations, three quick little doctrinal facts. And now let's transition to answering two questions this morning. Two overarching questions about this letter that Paul wrote to Titus that I think are kind of crucial to understand what's going on here. First, we want to answer the question, what is Paul's goal in writing this short letter to Titus? What is Paul's goal? And second, what is his basis? What is his reason for that goal? Why does he think he can accomplish it? So what's Paul's goal and what's his basis or reason for that goal? So first, what's Paul's goal? I think we can find the answer right in verse 1. Paul again introduced himself, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then here it is, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul gives us his reason right away. He's writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect, God's people, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. For our notes, let's state it this way. Here's a summary of what I believe Paul's trying to express in this letter. He says, God's people are to grow in their faith 
and knowledge of the truth, that's our doctrine leading to godliness, devotion. Paul's writing this letter, spurring us on, trying to get us to understand that God's people are to grow in our faith and our knowledge of the truth, our doctrine, which will lead us to godliness. Grow in doctrine led to devotion. Paul wants us all to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God's truth, our knowledge and understanding of sound doctrine with the prayer, with the hope, with the result being godly devotion, doctrine leading to devotion. That's the marriage we were just talking about between doctrine and devotion, critical in the life of every believer. You see, believers' lives should be a picture of a healthy marriage between this sound doctrine and godly devotion. We can't separate them. We can't just stay over here, build up our head knowledge over and over, learn more and more and more facts about who God is, what he has done, but then not let it actually impact our life. Not let it sink in and transform our heart, affect our devotion to Christ and the way we live out our life. If that's happening, then we need to realize that something isn't quite right. That we have a disconnect between our head's doctrine and our heart's devotion. It's like we're affirming that we should obey the speed limit, but then failing to ever look at the speedometer. And I'll confess, it is all too easy to affirm, to confess biblical doctrine in our minds, but what about our hearts? Remember, we all have those personal doctrine that we're living by. We may intellectually believe that Christ is king, that God's will be done on earth as is in heaven, that his kingdom come, but so often that doctrine, when it comes to our devotion, takes second place in our hearts. Because although we don't want to say it or even believe it or certainly not raise our hands in front of everybody about it, our devotion is so often in my kingdom, my good works that I want to be done for my good and my glory. Paul often refers that to the desires of our flesh. You see, God's word here in the book of Titus and through the rest of the year and really anytime you read God's word, he is after your heart. Paul's purpose for writing this letter is that we would all grow in our faith and knowledge of the truth, yes, but not so that we'd be filled with facts and intellectual understanding or information, but instead that that information would plant deep seeds that would take root in our hearts and result in greater devotion, greater love, greater worship, greater praise to God as we live out godly lives and become more like Christ. God wants all of us, not just like literally all of the people sitting here, but every single part of who you are. That every part of us would be committed to knowing him and living for him, knowing God and living godly. That is Paul's basis for writing this letter. Now the second question or his goal, what is the basis or reason for that goal? What's the foundation, the firm foundation that Paul's confidence rests in that if God's people grow in sound doctrine, that it will result and lead to godly living. Well, we see this in verses two and three. They provide us the answer. So his goal is that we would grow in doctrine leading to devotion. 
And how are we to do that? He says this, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So what's Paul's basis for his goal in this letter? Hope of eternal life. Here's the truth Paul is resting on. Paul trusts that God's people can grow in their doctrine and devotion only and if only as they rest in the hope of eternal life, as they rest in the gospel. We can grow in doctrine and devotion only as we rest in the hope of eternal life, as we rest in God's good news. Now, this might seem a little bit like circular reasoning, but that, in fact, I believe is the beauty of the gospel. You see, it's the gospel itself that our faith and knowledge are trying to grow in, which leads us to greater devotion to God, but it's also that same gospel that allows us to rest and trust in giving all of ourselves, giving everything to living fully for God. As God, as the gospel as Paul writes in Romans 1.16 about the gospel, he says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the good news that Christ came and died in our place. And everyone, all that trust and believe in him can have eternal life, but it is also the fulfillment of all of God's promises that he made, it says, before the ages began. They've been achieved by and even partially fulfilled in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, but they also include the future hope that we're looking forward to, the future hope of eternal life, that Christ will one day return and we will be raised up with him. And on that last day, we will join him forever in eternity, in glory, with Christ, singing his praises and that amazing truth, the amazing grace of God is what Paul devoted his life to. And in fact, he's telling Titus and he's telling us, I believe this morning, that the preaching and proclamation of that truth is how it's going to be revealed more and more to the world. You see, of course, it was manifest and revealed to us in and through Christ literally coming in the historic event where Christ was born of the virgin. He became man. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. He suffered, he died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. That all happened. That is when we see that truth come into the world, but you see it continues to go out. It continues to transform generation after generation after generation as the gospel is proclaimed by God's people. By sharing the foundation of how we can grow in Christ, how we can first be saved, but then how we can rest in that eternal hope. You see, that proclamation is really doctrine leading to devotion, and then devotion leading to proclamation of that doctrine, which then again leads to devotion, and around and around we go as we seek to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the ages. Brothers and sisters, we can all grow in our faith. We can all grow in our knowledge of God. And even 
live God-honoring lives, pursuing the good works that he has prepared for each and every one of us only as we rest in the hope we have in Christ, the hope of eternal life, the hope of the good news of the gospel, that we have been saved, that we are being saved and sanctified, and that one day when Christ returns, we will be saved and be with him forever. We must rest in the gospel. So here's where I want to end today. Let's think about the gospel and let's consider our own lives. I want to end this morning with a challenge for each and every one of us to consider your own doctrine and devotion. How is your doctrine? How are you doing when it comes to faith and knowledge of the truth? And equally important, how is your devotion, your commitment to Christ, living a life devoted to him? What would the people that know you best say your life is devoted to? The people that see you day in and day out, what would they say your life is devoted to? Now let's just pick on everybody this morning. That's what I like to do apparently. I don't want to let anybody off the hook. Perhaps your life looks really, really good and really godly on the outside. And perhaps you're like your friend's Bible expert. If anybody has a question about the Bible, you are the person they go to for that answer. But in your heart and deep down, you know that all of that is a mask. It's a front. You've got to consider your own heart and mind. What? am I devoted to most in my life? 